And I call this arguments for and from biblical prophecy because there's a difference between arguing that there is such a thing as fulfilled prophecy and arguments about what the best explanation of that fact is. So it's one thing to say, yes, here is an example of fulfilled, fulfilled prophecy, and another to say, well, how do you explain that? You know, maybe you can explain it as a result of luck. Um, maybe you can uh, explain it some other way, and so on. Bernard Ram uh, noted that prophecy is part and parcel of biblical religion. Now, of course, biblically speaking, prophecy does not uh, only mean predicting the future. Nonetheless, a large chunk of biblical prophecy, uh, some have estimated uh, as much as uh, 27% of the Bible, consists of predictions about the future of one kind or another. And predictive prophecy we could categorise uh, in a number of different ways. We could uh, think about uh, what we could call short-term prophecy. Um, that is generally prophecy within the lifetime of people who hear that prophecy being made by a prophet also see the fulfilment of that prophecy. Now that's really useful for those people because they can use that uh, prophecy and fulfilment as a way of judging the uh, credentials of the prophet. And we'll see a few Bible verses that relate to this in a moment. But it's not particularly useful for us in terms of making arguments from prophecy now, um, because um, the, the closer together, historically speaking, uh, the prof- prophecy and the fulfillment are, the easier it is for the sceptic to say, oh, well, those prophecies must have been written after the events they're talking about, and it only looks like it's making a successful prediction. Then we can talk about uh, long-term fulfillment of prophecy, not so useful for people in the historical period itself, but much more useful for us, apologetically speaking, today. And then there'll be a whole category, of course, of uh, prophecy about the end of days and end times. Uh, Again, not particularly useful for us, apologetically speaking, because the fulfilment of those prophecies hasn't been seen uh, to happen yet. So the Bible, just a few biblical verses on prophecy. Isaiah 41.23 says, uh, Tell us what is to come hereafter. Issues this challenge to pagan deities. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, that you're divine. That this is a hallmark of the divine to be able to uh, accurately foretell uh, the future events. Jeremiah 28.9 talks about how the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one sent by the Lord only if the prediction comes true. This is because in the historical context, prophecies of uh, doom and gloom were not particularly surprising when they came true. It would be a little bit like uh, me issuing the sort of, uh, oh, sometime this afternoon you will meet a tall, dark stranger, you know, uh, well, if you meet a tall, dark stranger this afternoon, you're not all suddenly going to become convinced of my prophethood uh, on that basis alone, uh, because that's not too surprising that that should happen. Whereas prophesying peace in the historical context, that was a, a risky prediction to make. And so when it came true, that said something about the credentials of the prophet. 
Particularly interesting here is Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death within Israel. And you may say to yourselves, but how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Well, here's the test. If what the prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. (laughs) God knows the future. His prophets, if they're really prophesying uh, from God, will uh, have the inside information and what they say will come true. If it doesn't come true, well, that's very serious. So it it would not only uh, be a matter of making risky predictions in order to be a prophet, in Israel it would be very risky (laughs) to issue such predictions if you weren't confident that you really were a prophet of the Lord. And of course that would be something that people would judge in terms of the short-term fulfilments of prophecies. And we see throughout the Bible, but particularly in the New Testament, prophecy used as an apologetics argument. Uh, This is especially highlighted in the writings of Luke, but we see prophecy arguments being used by Jesus, by St. Peter, and by St. Paul. It's an argument that various Christian apologists through the ages, uh, like uh, William uh, Paley, Blaise Pascal, Augustine, have used, uh, but which has fallen out of favour in the last uh, couple of centuries. Um, And I think it's an argument when I first came across it um, as a teenager reading the works of Josh McDowell, say books like uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, It was an argument that intrigued me and frustrated me at one and the same time. Uh, And I remain convinced that there is something uh, beneficial to be had from this argument, but that we need to do a lot uh, more hard work in terms of thinking about um, how we um, parse this argument, how we do our historical work in in justifying the argument and so on. And uh, so I'm on a sort of uh, mission occasionally to come back to this argument and tighten up and strengthen the way in which we put it. Let me start with a concrete example before I go, go back to the more abstract sort of criteria Uh, philosophical, mathematical stuff. But let me start with something concrete. We'll look at some criteria, and then we'll come back to some more concrete examples. And I'll pause occasionally as we go through, uh, see if there is a little brief time for questions on each of the sections as we come through. So um, what I would call a city prophecy, Jesus' city prophecy, particularly about the fate of the temple in Jerusalem. Ian Wilson, in his book The Bible is History, notes that it's a straight fact of history that Herod's seemingly so permanent temple, uh, recently completed, that Jesus had predicted would be destroyed within a generation of his time, and we've got multiple references uh, through the synoptic uh, scriptures there, synoptic gospels, about this prediction, that the temple did indeed suffer this very fate. Here is uh, the quote from Mark uh, 13, Uh, Now, I don't have time to go into the dating of Mark's Gospel. A lot of people would put it later than I do. I would argue for a date as early as as 49. But the main thing here, of course, is to argue for a date of Mark's Gospel that is prior to the events of the destruction of the Temple that happened in AD 70. And as long as you can do that, uh, then you can mount this argument. So, as Jesus was leaving the Temple... uh, We've got a nice CGI recreation of the Temple complex here... 
one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And there are various other details as well. Now, I mentioned the phrase about risky predictions. And the philosopher of science, the philosopher of science Karl Popper, is famous for this phrase about risky predictions. And he argued that when you're testing your scientific theory and you draw predictions from your theory and then you go and look and see whether or not those predictions are verified or falsified, he said confirmations of your, your theory should count as evidence for your scientific theory only if they're the result of risky predictions. So again, the sort of Barnum statements that you find in the astrology columns of uh, newspapers aren't going to cut the mustard, as we English say. It's not going to do the job for you. Um, So how risky would it be to point at a gigantic temple complex from the ancient world and say, this is going to be destroyed in a generation and so on? Well... (coughs) Scientifically, we could sort of draw an analogy with uh, looking at a, uh, a, a test reference sample. So a few years ago, as a travelling speaker for the ELF conference, I had the privilege of going and speaking in Athens, in Greece. And I got the morning off whilst I was there, and I spent it going and visiting the Parthenon. Uh, Parthenon is uh, a very analogous temple complex to the Jewish temple complex in Jerusalem. Just that they have multiple temples there because they had a polytheistic religion. But as you can see, this is the the main temple there, the Parthenon, still standing today after 2,000 years of history. Um, Still standing, a little dilapidated, granted, but still standing, despite the fact that at one uh, historical period, a couple of hundred uh, years ago, the the Turks uh, used it as a gunpowder store, and it got hit by a shell, and the gunpowder all exploded, which didn't do the building much good. Hi there. I have the wrong time. I apologize. That's okay. And I'll pop that in a pocket. (coughs) So you can't guarantee that any temple that you happen to point at is going to uh, suffer the fate uh, that Jesus predicted. Particularly when he puts a timeline on it, he says that's going to happen within a generation. Um, Even if you just left it open-ended, had you pointed at the Parthenon in Jesus' day and said... Not one stone will be left on another. Well, it's still standing, you know. Um, 2,000 years. Um, maybe it'll still be standing in another 1,000 years. So, who knows? But we do know from extra-biblical sources that in AD 70, the Roman general Titus and his army destroy the Jerusalem temple, which had become the main Uh, fortification holdout of the Jewish rebels in the Jewish war of AD 66 to 70. And here, a panel from the Triumph Arch of Titus, you can see Roman soldiers carrying away booty from the Jerusalem temple. Uh, And you can tell this, and you see the Jewish menorah candlestick there from the temple being carried away by the Romans. Now we're told that from a distance, and again here's a a model of the temple, 
from a distance, the whole temple looked literally like a mount of snow fretted with golden pinnacles, and different archaeologists argue amongst themselves as to exactly how much gold there was on the temple, um, but it's agreed that there was gold on the temple. And that's interesting, because when the Romans uh, conquered the temple in AD 70, they set fire to it. And the fire ranging in the temple complex caused the gold fittings and fixtures and ornaments and uh, gilding of the temple to melt and to run down into the cracks between the stones in the temple. And then, having conquered the place, the Romans, they wanted the booty, they wanted the loot for your army, you know, uh, and to get at the gold, they had to take apart the place stone by stone. And once they'd taken it apart stone by stone, as they were doing that, they chucked the stones off the side of the temple complex. And you can see still today at the base of the temple mount, stones from the buildings that had been on top of the temple, forming the temple complex, thrown down in AD 70 by the Romans, cracking the pavement below. So here we have archaeological remains of that event. And here is a photo aerial view of the temple complex today and of course you can see with your own eyes that not one of those buildings from Jesus' day is left standing. So we have the, the, the Dome of the Rock uh, Muslim there. <coughs> this is uh, an aspect of the prophecy I call Run for the Hills! Um, quote from Luke, which I would date to about 61 AD. Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea, Jerusalem, must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. Those who are in the country mustn't enter it, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. In Mark 13, verse 14, we have a slightly different aspect of this. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, and people argue about what this is, but when you see this, standing where he or it does not belong, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. So I would summarise this as saying, when you see armies coming to surround Jerusalem, you know that the desolation is near, you better get out of there. When you see the desolation, you better get the heck out of there, right now. It's really urgent. The end is nigh, as it were. And indeed, we know historically that there was a pause between the Romans taking over the temple complex where the rebel army had holed up and being sidetracked by all of that and getting the loot from the temple and so on before they then went on to go and slaughter the general citizenry of Jerusalem in the rest of the city. And that's why it's really urgent that you get out at that stage. So some commentators, as I am here, have linked the, the desolation uh, thing with the events of AD 70 when Titus forces his way into the temple sanctuary 
and his soldiers set up standards, and the Jews would have considered the imperial standards of the Roman legions as like idols, pagan idols, and the, the Romans sacrifice in front of their standards to their gods, and indeed they proclaimed ten, uh, Titus the general as emperor. But Robert Stein, commenting uh, on this in his book, Jesus, the Temple and the Coming Son of Man, which I recommend to you, but this is an aspect of it that I disagree with, he says that this can't be the right interpretation, surely, because it's too late to serve as a sign to flee Jerusalem. After the siege of Jerusalem, when flight was no longer possible. So can this interpretation stand? Well, here I think we get some useful information from archaeology and from Josephus. It's been known since the 19th century that there's a network of tunnels and caves underneath Jerusalem. And fairly recently, in 2007, archaeologists rediscovered uh, the main uh, drainage, sewage channel, if you like, of uh, Jerusalem that runs along this yellow line here. It runs from the temple complex, notice, and it runs all the way down to the Shaloa pool near the gate of the Essenes in the south of Jerusalem. Norman Golb, who's a professor of Jewish history at the University of Chicago, says this, that underground passages enabled many inhabitants of Jerusalem to exit the city and to flee both south to Masada and via Nahil Kidron and other wadis heading from Jerusalem eastward towards the Dead Sea. Ronnie Reich of the University of Haifa and Eli Sukron of the Israeli Antiquities Authority note that there's evidence in the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, that numerous people took shelter in this main drainage channel here and even lived in it for a period of time during the siege until, they say, they succeeded to flee the city through its southern end. Well, I mentioned uh, Josephus's work, so I thought I'd better go and look up Josephus's works, and indeed, uh, chapter uh, 6, uh, books, I don't know if chapter 6 or book, book 6, chapter 8, verse 5, he talks about those who went down during the siege to subterranean caverns, talks about the Romans making a search for Jews underground, and when they found where they were, they broke up the ground and slew all that they met with. But here is the really interesting bit, a little bit later on, talking about after the siege, this is from book 7, chapter 6, verse 5 of the Jewish War. He talks about one Judas, the son of Jairus, who had been a captain of a certain band at the siege of Jerusalem. And by going down into a certain vault underground, had privately made his escape. So here is extra-biblical historical evidence that even at that stage when the Romans had taken over the temple complex and defeated uh, the rebels, it was possible to flee from Jerusalem and to escape. Maybe you had to know someone who worked in the sewage department, um, but it certainly was possible, and here's an example of someone that we know who did do that. Now, the obvious comeback to saying that this is an example of fulfilled prophecy is to say, well, surely this is, this is a backdated prophecy, as it were, written after the events, pretending to have been written before the events. But there are a number of historical problems with saying this, quite aside from the fact that it, that's obviously just a sort of ad hoc, question-begging response to the argument. 
Josephus, for example, records the prophecy of another Jesus, uh, a peasant son of Ananias, who at the Feast of the Tabernacle in AD 60 prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, And he was right. Um, So if uh, Josephus can record that Jesus making this prophecy, why can't the Christian Jesus make a similar prophecy? Well, the difficulty is going to be that Jesus, son of Anais' prophecy, is quite general. And it's only 10 years before AD 70, and indeed the Jewish war starts in 66, so it's only like five or six years before the Jewish rebellion starts, and maybe it's in the air, and maybe it's easier to make a good guess, and so on. But Jesus' prophecy was issued before he died in AD 33. So that's more like 30 years before the event. And it's a lot more specific as well. Nonetheless, uh, Wenham and Waltham in their commentary note that Matthew and Mark's verses that invite disciples to pray that the siege of the city will not be in winter. Remember that? Well, we know historically that the siege happened in April to September. So uh, Luke reports the same saying as Mark, that the disciples should flee to the mountains. Remember that? But we know that the early Christians did indeed flee Jerusalem when the Roman armies were coming. Um, But they went to a place called Pella, which is several hundred feet lower than Jerusalem. They didn't flee to the mountains at all. They fled downhill. (laughs) So those would be odd things to put into your prophecy. Pray it doesn't happen in winter. Go uphill. If you're writing it after events where you know that people that it happened not in winter and that people went downhill. That would be odd. Indeed, if you're writing after the events about this, why not mention the events of AD 70 as proving that Jesus is the prophet of God? He said this would happen, and look, we all know that it did. That proves he was a prophet. Uh, when Edmund Walton notes that Acts, uh, this is one of the main arguments for dating Acts earlier than, uh, than some people do, it's to notion that it finishes with Paul still in prison and alive, uh, probably in about the mid-60s, and that Luke's Gospel, which is part one of a two-volume work, is probably written earlier than Acts, uh, and that the, the portrait of the Roman authorities doesn't really fit with Nero's persecution of the Christians that happened from 65 onward and so on, but it fits a time period earlier. There's all sorts of historical reasons for dating Acts and Luke, and then Luke draws upon Mark's Gospel uh, earlier than the events of the Jewish war from 66. Also, that nothing is said in in Acts about the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, which is recorded by Josephus as happening in AD 62. Um, The stoning of Stephen is mentioned. You'd think that they would mention the death, the martyrdom of the brother of the Lord. That happened by the time that the uh, account was written. So there's no reason to date Luke any later than the early 60s, and that pushes mark earlier than that so you've seen the, the, the real key the real difficulty that would push the sceptic to trying to argue to beg the question against all of the actual historical evidence for the dating 
of this prediction as being before the events. They want to do that because of the, the specificity of the predictions happening so long before the event. Jesus talks about within a generation, no stone on another. The stone's thrown down, not merely taken apart, but also thrown down. The flight being most urgent after the desecration of the temple, fitting with what we know historically. And he talks about what happens to the citizens being sold off into slavery and so on as well. Now, back of the envelope calculation here, folks. And we admit this is a back of the envelope type calculation. At odds of 1 in 10, because that makes our maths a lot easier if we use multiples of 10 here. At odds of 1 in 10 for each of those specific parts of the prophecy, you would say that this prophecy had an unlikeliness of 1 in 10 to the 4, 1 in 10,000 of coming true just by luck. Now that is the same odds as you being able to crack this combination lock, which has four dials with ten possibilities on each dial. Um, I'm going to hand out this combination lock, and you feel free to pass it around during the rest of the talk. Try a few combinations and see if you can open it. Let us know <laughs> if you manage to open it. The, I tell you, the odds are significantly against you, but we'll see. Uh, so, one in 10,000 chance of Jesus getting those things accurate by chance, I would say, is not an unreasonable estimate which brings us back to criteria, making our criteria uh, methodologically sound here. Um, drawing on works of uh, folks like William Dembski's book uh, on the design inference, and uh, he's updated that since, but it's a, um, a, a classic sort of breakthrough work in the whole area of design detection criteria. And I'm sort of taking these criteria from the whole field of um, intelligent design theory and applying them to this prophecy argument. Um, Professor William Lane Craig puts it like this, summarizing Dembski's work. He says, as a basis for making a design inference, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. And he gives this example. In a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet it's not the result of chance, but of design. If you accuse that person of cheating and they said, hey, but any deal of cards that I get is just as unlikely as any other, what's your complaint? You're not going to be satisfied with that because not only is that event unlikely, but it's hidden this independently given significant pattern of getting all four aces, uh, trumping your hand all the time. Or if you were drawing letters out of a Scrabble bag, sight unseen. If you drew out this string of letters, that would be very unlikely. It's very complex. But it is not specified. It's just gibberish. If you drew out a short English word like dog, that would be specified, but it's not particularly unlikely that you would do that by luck occasionally. However, were you to draw out of your Scrabble bag a sentence like this sentence from Plato's Laws about things becoming some by nature, some by art, and some by chance as your ways of explaining things, well, that is both very unlikely as a pattern and it's independently specified. This hits the independently already known um, rules of grammar 
for language and so on. And it is clearly the product of design. And in our repeated and uniform experience, when we are able to track down what we know the source of such complex and specified patterns, and we know where they came from, they invariably come from an informing mind. Or one last example. You see someone enter a sequence of numbers into a cash machine, and it gives them money. Were they lucky? (laughs) Or did they get the money by design? A PIN number, by the way, of course, has four digits with ten options each. So just like that combination lock that you're passing round, that's uh, one chance in 10,000 of guessing the right PIN number on any particular try. On any particular try, of course. The more tries you have, the more likely you are to crack the code. So... Are are you likely to crack that combination lock in the hour we have together? No. But if you spent all week on it, you'd probably crack it. So as Tom Morris says, a single successful prediction could just be a lucky guess. But the more successful, tightly specified predictions of that kind a person can make, the less likely it becomes that we'll just be satisfied with describing it all to luck. Uh, imagine we have a really long combination lock here. There's one in 10 to the 4, our 4 digits there. It's equivalent to our pin number and the lock we're passing round. But as we go up, we get a combinational inflation. Because when you're working out probabilities, it's, you don't add them together, you multiply them together if they're independent probabilities. So uh, it's not 1 in 10 plus 1 in 10 chance, plus 1 in 10 chance, and so on. It's a 1 in 10 chance multiplied by a 1 in 10 chance, and then that result multiplied by a 1 in 10 chance, and so on. So if we had um, 1 in 10 to the 8, with, with 8 of these dials, that's not a, a number twice as large as 1 in 10 to the 4. Instead, that's a number much, much bigger than twice as large as 1 in 10 to the 4. Uh, and the graph, as it were, it sort of does this the further this way you're coming. Now, Dembski notes that a seemingly improbable event can become quite probable when placed within the right reference class of what he calls the probabilistic resources. How many people for how long are trying to open the lock, as it were? On the other hand, it might remain, the event might remain improbable even after you factored in all of the relevant probabilistic resources. Um, so in judging this kind of probability um, criteria, we have to ask of each time that we're uh, applying the criteria, what's the relevant uh, probabilistic resources class to appeal to? Well, the French mathematician Emile Borel uh, famously proposed the number of 1 in 10 to the 50 as uh, a universal probability bound. Uh, these days, working off numbers about, about the age of the universe and the number of fundamental particles and the, the Planck time, the shortest time things can happen in and so on, um, people will calculate numbers like 1 in 10 to the 20 or 1 in uh, 10 to the 150 as the, the maximum number of events that can have happened thus far in the entire history of the universe. Um, but here, what's the relevant 
probabilistic resources when we're talking about prophecies about things happening in human history. Human history is an incredibly small slice of the entire history of the universe. So probability bounds of of 1 in 10 to the 120 and so on seem ridiculously large. Um, As I say, Borrell proposed 1 in 10 to the 50. Um, Maybe we could get away with a lower bound than that. It's hard to say how we precisely kind of nail that down. And I think the only way to go with that here is to appeal to the intuitions of the people we're talking to and to be massively conservative in the numbers that we calculate, in the odds that we attribute uh, to the chance fulfilment of these prophecies. As you'll see, I'll be massively conservative. So if we get this close correspondence between the most plausible reading of prophetic predictions in the biblical texts and some sufficiently improbable event or series of events, the best explanation for that match is going to be design, according to this design inference criteria. And in such a case, if you can show that the predictions were written down sometime before the event that they're talking about, that's key, of course, and that the event couldn't be or wasn't humanly manipulated to fit the prediction. So let's ignore things like Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem um, here. Yes, it's predicted, but clearly he deliberately does that to make a messianic claim. So we're going to rule that kind of example out. But then, the best explanation of that match occurring would be, I suggest, an appeal to the supernatural resources of the religious context of the prophet and the prophecies that we're looking at. And thus, when you do the argument from the existence of these fulfilled prophecies, um, you'll get quite a rich concept of the God that we're talking about. Um, unlike with something like, say, you know, the cosmological argument or the design argument, will give you certain characteristics of God, but not very much. But here, uh, if this argument works, it will get you to a very rounded biblical concept of divinity. So, any brief uh, questions on that sort of criteria uh, methodology? not, we'll hopefully have some time at the end as well, and I'll hang around, of course. Okay, uh, pressing on, just uh, one other example of an Old Testament city prophecy. I'm going to skim very briefly over what happened when Sennacherib uh, tried to invade Jerusalem uh, in the days of Hezekiah. Um, The Egyptians didn't back Hezekiah up as he had hoped, and the, the Syrians conquered all of the other towns and there was a brief respite in which you get the digging of Hezekiah's tunnel and the fortification of Jerusalem and so on. And then the Assyrians come back, uh, threatening bloody vengeance. And uh, we see in Isaiah and Kings and Chronicles about this uh, event, Isaiah prophesying that God will protect Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Um, now, interestingly, we get pretty specific prophecies here again, and this is key. Um, Isaiah and two kings between them report prophecies that due to divine intervention, Sennacherib wouldn't attack Jerusalem. He's already come there once to do it, had to go home to deal with some other things, threatening to come back. So I think it was very unlikely that he wouldn't come back to finish off the job. His reputation demanded it. Let's say one in a hundred, that seems pretty conservative. That having done that, he wouldn't actually succeed in taking Jerusalem. Very, very conservative. Let's say one in ten. 
um, that he would then go back to Nineveh without having taken Jerusalem and that he wouldn't even return as he had already once return to try and finish the job. Again, I think that's pretty unlikely, but one in a hundred seems fairly conservative. Um, and there are some other elements that I'm not going to, to go into. Um, I get some odds out of that, out of the main prophecies here, of 1 in 10 to the 5. And again, that's not just a bit bigger than 1 in 10 to the 4. <laughs> that's a lot bigger. That's a lot less likely than 1 in 10 to the 4. As an illustration, these were English pennies, and we had uh, English penny pieces making uh, f- two one-foot cubes of pennies, your chances of picking out the right pre-specified penny from the, the two blocks of pennies would be roughly 1 in 10 to the 5. We know from independent, from the Babylonian historical record, that Bab- the Babylonian uh, Snowshobes prism in the British Museum in London records the king saying that as for Hezekiah, who didn't submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities I besieged and took. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land and gave to various people. And then he says nothing more about it. So there's this this strange, ominous silence about what happened to Jerusalem then. He came back specifically to finish off Jerusalem. And in the Babylonian record of the times... He clearly doesn't say, I took Jerusalem. Indeed, the, the, the indication here is that he, he sort of um, besieged it in a sense, but didn't take it. He doesn't say it's one of the, the spoils that he gave to other people or that he despoiled it. Um, compare with uh, the Jerus- uh, Judea city of, of Lachish, where you can see in the archaeological record the arrowheads, the the siege ramp built by the Assyrians against the walls and so on. None of that is there in the archaeological record for the time period uh, with Jerusalem. So he may have sort of laid siege in a sense, but he didn't actually get as far as laying siege to it, putting the siege ramps up, firing arrows at people, uh, as the prophecies said would not happen. And there's a, a, a strange passage in the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC who writes about a massive destruction of Sennacherib's army's fighting capacity at what he calls the entrance to Egypt. Now look on your map between Egypt and the Assyrian Empire and see where Israel is there, the entrance to Egypt. Um, And he depicts a plague of field mice chewing up the Assyrians' leather bowstrings and quivers and shield straps so that they couldn't fight anymore. And he attributes this destruction of the army's fighting capacity to the wrath of the gods. But maybe this is a somewhat garbled uh, pagan retelling of a divine intervention that stops the fighting capacity of an Assyrian army in the right part of the world at about the right time. That's interesting. So the extra-biblical, extra-biblical evidence shows that unlike, say, comparing with Lachish, Sennacherib didn't raise a siege ramp, didn't shoot arrows, didn't take Jerusalem. The army was suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention. Maybe it was mice. That <laughs> uh, Sennacherib returned to Nineveh. He never came back uh, to finish the job. Again, is the critic going to say, well, this is so precise, this knowledge, that it must come from after the event? 
But it's to beg the question against the argument, and it's to uh, give up on following, following the historical evidence to where it points to the dating of these documents in favour of a, just an ad hoc response that says, because I have a belief in a naturalistic worldview, don't confuse me with the evidence. Uh, which is a strange thing, particularly for neo-atheist critics who always like to harp on about evidence, evidence, evidence is the thing that you've got to follow. Uh, any charge of fraud, I would say, should be sustained by independent uh, evidence. And they didn't look kindly upon so-called pseudonymous forgeries, forgeries pretending to be being written by people that it wasn't written by. Um, how would you account for... Um, the place of short-term prophecy explaining why the Jews accepted anyone as a prophet if all of the prophecies have to post-date the events that they're talking about. Why would anyone be recognised as a prophet? Um, how would uh, passages like Deuteronomy uh, fit with that? Even uh, the sceptic Bart Ehrman notes that ancient sources took forgery seriously and they almost always condemn it in strong terms. Um, if you're going to uh, so-called, uh, so say, get executed for issuing prophecies that don't come true within Jewish society, how is that society going to look upon you making up the idea that someone made prophecies before an event when they didn't and saying this is the word of the Lord when it's not? They're not going to look kindly uh, upon that. So why would your uh, document get received into the canon of Jewish scripture and so on? Tyre is very interesting. Ezekiel's prophecies against Tyre. He gives a prediction about the powerful uh, seaport of Tyre in the 6th century BC after the Babylonian exile. And it seems to me that the prophecy breaks down into uh, a part that's generally about many nations coming against Tyre and a bit in the middle that is very specifically about Nebuchadnezzar uh, coming against Tyre. And it boils down to uh, a number of fairly specific predictions about what will happen to Tyre, that more than one nation will attack it, they'll attack successively, not together, that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will attack, that he'll attack the coastal towns of uh, the place first rather than going for the head of the snake first, that Tyre itself will be levelled, that the rubble of Tyre will be put into the sea, that Tyre will become a place where fishermen can dry their nets, and that the inhabitants of Tyre will never rebuild their city. What happened? Well, 25 years after that prophecy was made, if you go from the biblical datings, Tyre was besieged for 13 years by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we've even got a tablet uh, published um, bearing a receipt for flour brought to the king Nebuchadnezzar and his soldiers uh, at Tyre, uh, t uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his forces took the mainland city of Tyre in 573 BC and the island citadel just off the coast capitulated. But 250 years later, in 322 BC, Alexander the Great attacked Tyre. Now, he didn't have his navy with him at the time, which was unfortunate for him because there's this off-coast citadel of Tyre that he wants to take. So what does he do? Well, he uses the rubble from the old mainland city of Tyre and slave labour from many nations uh, to build a causeway out from the mainland to the island in order to attack it. 
to attain enough material for the causeway, the mainland site of, of Tyre had to be scraped clean. And here we have a before and after map uh, of after he built this isthmus out over time. You see, in the, by the 19th century, um, the accumulation of sand and debris and so on had built up onto um, the, uh, this sort of isthmus that we see here. But you can see a little bit more clearly in this photo here, the sort of ridge, the high ridge of the causeway. After treating Tyre with the greatest atrocity, we're told, Alexander rebuilt and replanted it so that future generations would regard him as the founder of a new city. And although there is these days a town of Tyre in the vicinity of the ancient city, that's got no connection organically uh, with the old city, which is long since gone. Um, the inhabitants of ancient Tyre never rebuilt their community. And fishermen have indeed used the spot for generations uh, for the spreading of their nets. So again, just using some rough back-of-the-envelope calculations, generous calculations of sort of multiplying 1 in 10 odds together, we can get down to 1 in 10 to the uh, 8 for the series of prophecies about what would happen to Tyre. Any questions on Old Testament city prophecies? <coughs> well, here's a question. Mm. Um, so it seems to be that in Ezekiel and other prophets, there, there are many prophecies about Edom, but they aren't. They don't have a time tag. Or a time index. Mm. So, if you apply one of those criteria that you mentioned, uh, I mean, we're still unsure if, if you go just by the criteria whether those prophecies are a forgery or whether they're still standing out uh, for the future. So, how, so what would your response be to that word? Right. So, this is really a question about it in, in terms of prophecies that don't have a sort of time stamp on them of they will be fulfilled by such and such a date that are sort of open-ended in a sense. Um, so you can't point to them and say they haven't been fulfilled yet, therefore they're wrong because they might be fulfilled in the future, those, those prophecies. Um, right, but neither, neither can you point to that aspect of the prophecy and say therefore it, you know, it, it has been fulfilled. Um, but whereas with this, I mean, there's, there's a uh, sort of implicit timestamp on things like that community will never be rebuilt. Um, I don't think it's germane to say, well, there's a modern city that's called by the name Tyre that's in the vicinity, or, um, you know, Alexander um, uh, built a, a new city in his own sort of, sort of name, having despoiled the old one and so on. The, the prophecy is about the collapse of, of that society, and that they will never rebuild it. Um, well, you, co you couldn't point at that and say, well, well, maybe they will rebuild it in the future, because that society is gone and passed. You know, the, the tyrant uh, sort of empire and potentate is no more. That society is, is receded into the mists of time. Um, so there is a sort of implicit uh, time stamp uh, within that. Um, I mean, timestamps are nice when they're there, implicitly or explicitly, but they're not the, the only aspect of prophecies. And I guess the only thing to say about that is maybe that gives you more probabilistic resources 
for the fulfilment of the prophecy. So you would have to be more conservative with the, with the, the numbers that you give to the fulfilment. But as, as I'll show, you can, you can be really generous on these numbers by the time you start multiplying them together because this combinational uh, inflation that you get by the, by the end of that process. Yes, sir? Would it add to the value of the prophecy in terms of apologetics by making the argument that this was a very unlikely prediction yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, risky, it's going to be risky predictions, uh, as, as Popper was saying. A risky prediction is much better uh, for the argument than a sort of what's called a Barnum statement of something that's either vague or, or pretty likely to happen. And again, this thing of pointing to a control group. So, there are, there are prophecies about the towns of Tyre and of Sidon and of Jerusalem and of all sorts of cities. And if you took the specific things that are said that are going to happen to Tyre and applied them to some other coastal town, then it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been fulfilled. Um, uh, it's only in this case that you have such a specific list of, of things being fulfilled. Yeah. So, of course, what you make of such prophecies will in part depend upon the worldview you bring to them. And we've talked about begging the question against the sort of dating issue. But here's the thing. Not only is that question begging, but there's an inherent tension in trying to say, in trying to post-date the predictions. Um, Because even setting aside the question of prophecy, what the extra-biblical evidence shows in these cases is that the Old Testament certainly does present us with historically reliable accounts of what happened to these cities in history. And the later after those events you try and date a prophetic book the harder it becomes to explain historically how that writer had access to reliable historical knowledge about what happened in the supposed long distant past so you're going to want as the critic to sort of argue in an ad hoc nature that the prophecy was written after the event but not too long after the event (laughs) Um, which starts to make your case look even more ad hoc and improbable. So there's a historical tension involved in trying to post-date these prophecies in order to say, oh, well, people knew what happened. Well, it wasn't all that easy back in ancient history to know what happened a few hundred years ago. You couldn't just go and look it up on Wikipedia, you know. So messianic prophecies. Now, this is where it starts getting really juicy, because we can set aside worries about the dating, about post-dating. Because the last Old Testament book of Malachi was written by about 450 BC in the canon. And we know from both the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are dated to about 150 BC, and from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, also dated to about 150 BC, that all proves that anything that's in the Old Testament canon existed at least 150 years before the New Testament era. So even if they were you know, made up just before the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint were, were made, that means that those prophecies existed as texts at least 150 years before the events that they talk about. 
So in a sense, you can set aside all worries about this dating, post-dating uh, issue. Now, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11, um, talks uh, very interestingly about the fulfillment of prophecy argument and talks about various categories of Old Testament messianic prophecy. And in, there's a chapter in my book, Understanding Jesus, um, that goes into these different categories of messianic prophecy. It's a great way of organizing uh, the argument. Uh, again, rather than saying that these prophecies were post-dated, the sort of opposite critical move is to say that they are historicized prophecy. That, that, that Jesus' disciples looked at the Old Testament scriptures and said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we pretended that Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, and let's just say that he fulfilled them even though he didn't. And then you would, of course, get a match from the sort of the opposite direction, as it were. Um, but I think that is historically highly implausible for all sorts of reasons uh, to do with the, um, what they themselves say they're doing in those historical biography writings, uh, in looking um, at um, the fact that they only really interpreted a lot of these Old Testament prophecies that they apply to Jesus. They only interpreted them as applying to him with the benefit of hindsight. It was their experience of meeting the resurrected Jesus that convinced them that the Messiah could be the kind of Messiah that Jesus claimed he was uh, and would get them to start up thinking that passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and so on were predictions of the Messiah when beforehand they couldn't really, they couldn't really grasp what Jesus was saying about that he had to suffer and so on and so forth and that was embarrassing to them because here they are the disciples of Jesus and they didn't really understand their teacher's teaching until uh, a lot uh, later on, you know, after the crucifixion and so on. And that's embarrassing. It's the historical criteria of embarrassment. People don't tell to, tend to tell stories against themselves if they can help it. The integrity, again, in terms of embarrassment displayed by the biblical writers, um, you know, Peter, in Mark, Mark, the source behind Mark's gospel, which talks the most about the flaws in Peter's character, Peter denying Christ, the fact that it was, uh, it was women who were not considered reliable witnesses in, the, in the, the culture of the day, that they were the first witnesses to the empty tomb and to the resurrected Jesus. Um, these culturally, to them, embarrassing things that they admit and they don't hide. Um, so that kind of integrity is hard to square with simply, well, let's just make up that Jesus did things that fulfilled Psalm 22 or whatever. Um, implausible given their willingness to be martyred for their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, Messiah who fulfilled these prophecies. Um, I think that shows their sincerity. They really believed he was the Messiah, uh, which they wouldn't have if they were just making up the idea that he was the Messiah and making up that he fulfilled these prophecies that the Messiah would have to uh, fulfill. And if they would be happy to just make stuff up why don't they, in, in, in the New Testament literature, why don't they talk about all sorts of things that were hot-button issues for the early church, uh, about circumcision of Gentiles? or you know, Why not put into the mouth of Jesus some definitive statement about, by the way, folks, when you take this gospel to the ends of the earth, of course, some Gentiles are become, going to become my followers, and you don't have to have them circumcised to be my followers. You know, that would have solved the issue and if you're happy to just make up 
events that never happened in order to try and make it seem like Jesus is the Messiah, why wouldn't you be happy to make up stories like that? Would solve headaches uh, for your uh, burgeoning organisation and the New Testament church simply doesn't do it. So uh, we've talked about setting aside deliberate fulfilment passages. Uh, you can see this uh, sort of thing in more detail in my book, looking at these various categories. Here are eight prophecies about the Messiah's origins that he has to fulfill. Some of these num- numbers we can hammer down more certainly than others. We can find out from Josephus, for example, how many Jewish settlements and villages there were. Ignoring the fact that, ple- that you're much more likely to be born in a big place like Jerusalem than a small place like Bethlehem, we can just use that number as a baseline for the probability of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and so on. Um, prophecies about the Messiah's actions is another category. And you'll notice here, rather than going the sort of Josh McDowell route of here is an Old Testament verse showing the prophecy and here is one verse from the New Testament, I'm trying to show fulfilment of those Old Testament passages by looking at multiple independent testimony from the New Testament that they happened. So, you know, a prophecy that the Messiah will come from the seed of Isaac and testimony from Matthew, from Romans and from Hebrews. Three independent witnesses that Jesus was from the right historical lineage and so on, rather than just relying upon one source. That's what I mean by tightening up our historical criteria for what we let through here. Um, you can even look again at extra biblical evidence. There's extra biblical evidence recorded by Origen talking about the Greek writer Phlegon, uh, who um, talk, he says talks about the idea that Jesus was a successful prophet and testified that the result of his predictions, the predictions corresponded to what actually happened and in history. Or um, looking at the idea that the Messiah would be thought to heal people. Again, we have multiple independent attestation in the New Testament for the reality of Jesus' healing miracles. But there's attestation from outside the Bible, from Josephus, from the Babylonian Talmud, from the pagan philosopher Celsus in the second century, saying it was by magic that Jesus was able to do the miracles that he appears to have done. So he doesn't, as a critic of Christianity, say, they say Jesus did miracles, but actually that's a lie, they made it up. He says, no, yeah, of course, he did things that were miraculous, but it was by magic, it, was by, it wasn't by the power of God. And the Jews in Jesus' day make the same accusation and say it's by the power of Beelzebub that you do these things. Um, so if you look at, say, 12 prophecies about Jesus' origins and actions, I very conservatively uh, figure a number of one chance in 170 million million for chance fulfilment. Or 15 aspects of Isaiah 53 in Psalm 22 about the passion. One in 1,074 million. Multiply those together. Uh, this is 27 prophecies being fulfilled by chance. Uh, about one uh, chance in 1.8 times 10 to the 23. Now when you're dealing with a number like 10 to the 23, that's comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first attempt a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all of the grains of sand on planet Earth. (laughs) Or one star out of all of the stars in the observable universe. These are literally astronomical numbers uh, against 
the chance hypothesis. And you might say, let's bend over backwards for the critics. Some of what I calculated there was dependent upon inherently miraculous events. Now, I gave evidence that Jesus did work miracles and was a successful prophet. I've given evidence for those things. But okay, let's chuck those out of the window. Let's bend over backwards to meet the critic halfway, as it were. Um, James Ditz, in an article I refer to in the handout, lists just 25 Old Testament prophecies, and he uses the very conservative number of one in four chance for each of them. Well, that alone gets you to one in ten to the 15. Um, I don't like the fact that he uses Hosea 11.1, which is typological in its original context. I will call my son out of Egypt. That's talking about Israel, not the Messiah. So I swap in a different, different prophecy there. But one in ten to the 15, that's, that's one in chance in a quadrillion, which is about, estimated to be about the number of ants that are alive on the planet at any given time. So it's, it's not the number of grains of sand, but it's still a pretty big number. <laughs> As we work our way, the combinatorial inflation along here, if we start with um, 1 in 10 to the 25 for those prophecies for Jesus, and we factor in some of the other examples that we've looked at, like the, the prophecy about Tyre, would get us up to 1 in 10 to the 31. Um, about Sennara Cherub in Jerusalem, up to 1 in 10 to the 36. Uh, multiply in Jesus' prophecies about what would happen to the temple, one chance in 10 to the 40 we're now at. Um, if we use the Messianic prophecy calculations from my book, Understanding Jesus, instead of the, uh, what, the uh, 1 in 10 to the 25 there, we'd be past Borel's universal probability bound of 1 in 10 to the 50. We'd be up to 1 in 10 to the 50, 51-ish. But, again, let's be cautious. Let's bend over backwards for the sake of the critic. Let's ignore 1 in 10 to the 44. Let's chop out a huge proportion of that and say, well, let's just use the number of 1 in 10 to the 34. And I pick this as an example because it allows me to use the example of the wonderful snowflake that we have here. It is said, isn't it, that every snowflake is unique. And we know one's checked this. <laughs> But I'm told that the probabilities work out in terms of the possible arrangements of water molecules when they're freezing, that it's highly probable that every snowflake is unique. So we have a unique snowflake. Let's pick on one particular snowflake in the entire history of planet Earth. Dave Phillips, a senior climatologist with Environment Canada, has estimated that the total number of snowflakes that have fallen on planet Earth over the course of history thus far... Is about, one, is about 10 to the 34 snowflakes. So if I say to you, get into a time machine, get into the TARDIS, get into H.G. Wells' time machine, go backwards in history, or stay in the present day, go anywhere you like on the planet, at any time past of now, stoop down, pick up a snowflake. What are the odds that you would pick the right snowflake? that specific snowflake, one chance in 10 to the 34. Um, remember, we, we use conservative numbers in making the calculations in the first place, and then we've dropped a huge proportion of the final figure that we arrived at, just for the sake of a nice illustration <laughs> at the end here. So, to conclude... 
Looking at historical uh, issues about fulfilled prophecy in the Bible certainly shows you that the Bible contains accurate knowledge about various historical events, whenever you think those prophecies were written down before or after the event. Um, But there's an inherent tension, not only is to say, well, it must have been written after the event, just to beg the question, an ad hoc, but there's also an inherent tension in sort of saying, after the event, but not too long after, because they had to know accurately about the information. And if the writers accurately knew what happened back in the day, as it were, maybe one of the things that they accurately knew about was that Isaiah made this prophecy, that Ezekiel made that prophecy. After all, they've been shown by looking at the extra-biblical archaeological record, Babylonian records, etc., they've been shown to be accurately conveying what actually happened in history. So why wouldn't they be accurately conveying this as well? There's evidence varying in strength that these events were um, predicted by specific prophecies made before the fact. And interestingly and usefully for Christian apologetics, the best evidence certainly concerns those messianic prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, where all worries about them post-dating the events are removed. And that match between those specific prophecies and the events, I think, is sufficiently unlikely to justify a design inference. As I say, it's hard to nail down what the appropriate reference class of probabilistic resources is, um, but I've tried to sort of persuade you with the examples that I, that I give um, that we can't be too far off by too many factors uh, of the right kind of ballpark here, as it were. And that's all we need to make a plausible argument for the reality of fulfilled biblical prophecy. And if there are such prophecies, the obvious best explanation of the existence of such things would have to do to appeal to the God believed in by the prophets who made those prophecies. The God that Jesus believed in. And so on. And so that gives you, at the end of the argument, quite a rich biblical concept of God that you are arguing towards, rather than the fairly thin rule that you get at the end of many arguments in natural theology. Um, thank you very much. We've finished before time, and we have a few minutes for any leftover questions. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. It was a very interesting presentation. Uh, there will be seri- uh, many issues to uh, address, but perhaps uh, I would like to address this, or address this. Well, the historicized prophecy, I don't think it's is, is the problem, but it's rather the messianic prophecies. Mm. I think the problem is rather this, that, for example, when we read Matthew's and Nativity's story, it seems very likely that they had the traditions about Jesus, the story about Jesus, and then they tried to find... Mm. Old Testament references to this yeah. event, such as, okay, we've heard that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, even though many scholars think he was actually born in Nazareth, and uh, we heard that he was, anyway, let's say that they heard that he was born in Bethlehem, then they find the scripture that says that mm-hmm. out of, no, wait, I'm thinking about the Egypt thing, yeah, it, that yeah. out of Egypt I called my son, which I yeah. don't know if any Jew would think that... Exactly. Any kind of prophecy at all. Yeah. So, so what, what the questioner is, is pointing to is the New Testament use of what's, what's called typological prophetic fulfillment, um, where the life of Jesus is seen to recapitulate major themes from the history of God's relationship with Israel. 
Um, but you're right to say that a passage like that Hosea passage that I noted, now out of Egypt I called my son. In historical context, it's not a messianic prophecy. It's about God rescuing Israel from Egypt. Now, later on, the life of Jesus does recapitulate that, in a sense, because the family flee to Egypt after the sac- uh, Herod kills all the babies, uh, and so on, and to, to escape, they go to Egypt and come back. And so the New Testament applies that typologically. And I, I think there might be an argument to be made there, but it wasn't part of the argument that I made here today. So I only, I only referenced that in order to say I'm not including that kind of data Um, So I I try to look at, as you say, you've got to try and look at prophecies that in the original context are pretty clearly Messianic prophecies, or at the very least, prophecies that, with the benefit of hindsight, are so obviously best interpreted as Messianic um, that it becomes sort of special pleading to think otherwise. I think that would be true of a passage like Isaiah 53. For example, okay. So I mean, we we could we could quibble about whether this or that particular passage, and you could you could go into the argument, but but I think that sort of the the general overarching way of dealing with with that issue is to say, um, I've been hugely conservative. I've tried to be conservative on the numbers that I calculate here. So even if you want to drop some of the factors in the calculation, as it were, I'd have to be even more wrong about even more stuff to be out by any significantly relevant factor by the end here. Why don't you make your own calculations? Make a calculation that, that doesn't include Psalm 22, if you like, and see what numbers you get at the end. Um, I, I would sort of use that argument. And that's why I think it's important to be conservative with the numbers and for my final illustration, so I'm now going to ditch most of the data that I've given myself and still try and make the argument plausibly, which, which factors in me being mistaken about quite a lot of what I said, either in terms of interpretation or history. I'd have to be out by huge factors here, there, and everywhere for this argument to fall apart. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Near the beginning, you made a couple of references to the level of probability that something has to be very effectively impossible. Yeah. Different numbers you threw out there, but what would be a number that you could use to say that for all practical purposes, if this is impossible to happen by chance? Yes. So um, I talked about um, in the intelligent design movement, uh, William Dembski, for example, uses the universal probability bound of one chance in 10 to the 150. He says that's the total number of events that could have happened in the entire history of the, of the observable universe. Um, uh, there's a guy called, I think it's Thess, uh, Thess, Seth Lloyd from MIT, uses 1 in 10 to the 120. Um, but those are the, you know, the total number of events that could have happened in the entire history of the observable universe. And I think that's clearly too generous. Because prophecies have to do with things happening in human history. And a lot of them, as we saw, have sort of time stamps on them, like in a generation or within the, 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 the organic living life of this or that community or empire or what have you. So they have a sort of implicit time stamp on them. So there we're, we're, we're obviously talking about a much smaller reference class of relevant probabilistic resources. Um, as I said, I, I don't know how to specifically nail that down 
Um, but I think it's got to be it's got to be smaller than one in ten to the hundred and twenty or whatever. It's quite likely it's got to be higher than than. Has anyone broken the combination lock yet? No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> one in ten to the four. You might you might say intuitively. Well, I suppose if I saw someone get money out of the cash machine or one of you had broken that lock, it, it could well be by chance. You know, it could be just a lucky fluke. Um, so probably somewhere between the bookends there, um, even the, the, the critics, the skeptics, kind of um, baloney detector internally, as it were, is going to go off and, and they're going to see that it's, it's just uh, ad hoc and, and implausible for them to just say, oh, it just happened by chance. You know, um, if I keep getting four aces every time I, I deal the cards at poker, <laughs> you're going to accuse me of cheating and you're not going to be satisfied with me saying, hey, but every hand's equally unlikely. You know, there's just one chance in whatever. Um, and the chances of getting, you know, the perfect poker hand or whatever, they're much smaller. I don't know what they are specifically, but uh, yeah, you know, so we just use these kind of illustrations uh, and... Um, allow the critic to make their own calculations if they want to and see where they get to. Our, our time is up, but I'm very happy to continue uh, talking, but I need to make sure we leave time for you to fill out the, uh, the questionnaire things for the, for the forum. So thank you very much for coming, keeping your brain in gear on a warm post-luncheon seminar slot. <laughs>